It uh, really is a privilege to be able to be here today, and as Jeff said, we've kind of hung out together off and on at uh, the Church of God Ministry Council, which was the big guru place, uh, which you didn't ever want to be. But when you were there, it's like, all right, you got to look for a friend because it is boring. Um, it's pr the right kind of work to do, but oh my gosh, it's like the right people need to do those jobs. The rest of us are like, <laughs> no, thank you. So anyway, that's kind of the first time we got to interact. And I remember uh, Jeff was asked to bring the uh, devotion of the day. And uh, it was amazing because I can still see him standing at the corner. I'm at this end. He's at that end. And he's talking to us about the challenge of uh, challenging leaders and he says it's very difficult to speak truth, and he points to the director of the Church of God, truth to power. Very visual connection of what it means to do that and the consequences sometimes of having to do that. So I can still see that moment. It's like ugh, all of us are kind of gripping in our hearts to do there. So I did graduate from Asbury. Uh, I don't remember. It was so long ago. Um, but... Honestly, it was a great time of my life. It was a great institution, and it was just amazing. I'm really grateful for it. You probably hear people off and on talk about uh, seminary, and, you know, they don't teach you this in seminary. I mean, I hear that kind of stuff all the time. You don't teach you this in seminary. What do you want them to teach you? Right? I mean, they're going to teach you how to do this theological work. Do you want them to get, do your life for you? <laughs> That's not going to happen. I mean, first of all, most of us who go to seminary, not all of us, it's changed now, but at least when I was there, most of us were less than 50. So figuring out life was the first thing. And, and here we are, it's thinking, well, I didn't teach you how to do these kinds of things. They're not supposed to. They're supposed to give you the foundation so you can think and process it. Amen. Yeah, I thought maybe there'd be a few profs that would be <laughs> affirming in the process. So let me just, let's get, let's get into it. So uh, we're going to talk about how to do real-time theology. So theology is not left in the clouds, but actually makes a difference in the, and it integrates in life. Uh, he says to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them that you might save yourself and your hearers. So in, the Church of God had to, has a national convention uh, every year, but anyway, I'm there one time years and years ago, and after seminary, I just kind of thought I was supposed to keep doing theological thinking. I didn't, I didn't know I got the degree and I'm done, so whenever they'd offer those kinds of things and I was there, I would want to go. And one year, they had a professor who I just thought was amazing in the Old Testament. Like everyone else, you don't disagree, you disagree and, dis and agree and disagree with some of the things, but just amazing. So I went there and I got several of my friends to go, we're going to go listen to this lecture and it's really, really intriguing stuff. And uh, we walk out, and there's a group of us just actually leaving probably this size, and we're walking out the door outside, nice sunny day in uh, Anderson, Indiana, walking by as one of the pastors whose church is doing quite well, and he says these words, what were you guys doing? The answer, he says, oh, you guys are theologians. Do you know that everybody's a theologian? Everybody. There is no person who's not. Some of us have street theology, but we're still theologians. We still have this concept of God that somehow has gotten into us and we've figured out how to make life work out of it, whether life works or not, but we live out of that picture of God that's in our heads and somehow in our soul. Everyone's a theologian. It's just where are you getting your theology? 
So some people have the idea that God is distant, and you, don't, you can't ever really relate to Him. So you're kind of on your own in life. I mean, you could get saved, maybe you're going to heaven, but between now and then, good luck. So they live without any awareness of the joy and the presence of the Most High God in their life. What are you doing? You may know that uh, the research is now saying there's a lot of people who are they calling, they're calling the duns. They're done with church. How does anybody get done with a God who loves them? How, how do you do that? And maybe you do that because you never really experienced how much God really loves you. Maybe you do that when you start just living with God as a distance and you do the church gig. You show up, you do what you're supposed to do, you teach the kids, you take the offering, you do those kinds of things, and then, then you go home and you go play golf, watch football, or do whatever you do. And then the next day you get up and you go to this crazy work job that you have and you feel pressures of money and temptations and all those kinds of things. And then you go back to church again and ask yourself, what am I doing? And so eventually you say, I don't want to do that anymore. So you're done. And the next person invites you to church and you think, really? I think not. Or maybe you would know people whose theology of God is that he's always displeased with them. So they're working, they're striving really hard to be good people. And I've, really, I've literally heard people say, I'm sorry, God, I'll do better. Well, that's kind of Romans 7. Probably not. But you can try. And you'll try and you'll try and you'll try and you get around these little sarcasm. Get around some Christians who act like they've got life all together and they're buttoned up and really nice and they make you feel like you're not cutting it. And you'll try harder until finally you'll get done with it. Did I say that? And when you get done with it, you're kind of, you have your options. The one done is to say, I will just keep trying harder and harder until I'm worn out. And the other done is when you put up your hands and say, I'm serious. I'm done. If you can't please God, why bother? Because he's always angry, and you're never good enough. We're all theologians. What intrigues me is how we who often study the Scripture, and if it's not true for you, that's okay, just shovel it back. We who study the Scripture often have the misunderstanding that we're theologians. And we're more than just those people who sit in places of offices and go to classes. We are that. Hopefully, we are that. We're more than just those moments. We have to figure out how to watch our life and our doctrine, our life as well as our doctrine, and somehow get the Scripture off the page, off this podium, and somehow integrated into my soul in such a way that it shapes me. And somehow it has to get out of there and get into here. And then when it does, I become a different person. Somehow you have to watch your life and your doctrine closely. And if you persevere, the shocking word here is if you persevere in your life integration of your doctrine, if you will persevere, eventually you must have some kind of impact because he says you're going to save people. Excuse me? Apparently, the spiritual fruits that we're going to have come from the integration of Scripture and life. That's why when you go to seminary and they teach you about Scripture and you wrestle with the application, you're supposed to. And sometimes you think, I don't get it. Join the club. 
All those people driving by right now, they don't get it either. You have to do the work of figuring out how in the world does that make a difference in my marriage? How in the world does that make a difference in my financial pressures? How does that make a difference in how I see myself? Life and doctrine integrating. I think it's even intriguing too because in our culture, and I, I live among pastors uh, often, and as I do, uh, I, I'm brokenhearted. Two issues that I see that pastors deal mostly with, many others, but two the most, uh, lack of self-esteem and lack of awareness, what they call EQ. Have no idea what's going on in the room because they're so destroyed in their own spirit. And so the stats tell us that most of us lose our self-esteem in the first five years of ministry. How does that happen? How in the world could you be called by the Most High God to be given such significant work and eventually you, you feel small? Small? Help me with this. How does this happen? And I wonder, I just pause it, I wonder if it's possible that those words that were written for all of our people that we preach to, do not let the world conform you into its image. I wonder if those first John words actually are needing to be integrated into our own life and doctrine. Because we have bought the idea of success. We think bigger is better. I've been in bigger. It has its advantages. But if you look at bigger, many, many of those leaders go through burnout. Because the faster the church grows, the faster they think they have to pedal. And they feel like there's this monster of a group of people, whatever number, that they have to kill it every week. And every week has to get better. So they'll come back and they'll go, my word, are you good? And they come back again. And then you put more pressure on yourself. You see what's happening? Because I've really got to be good or else they won't come back. And we can't make this million-dollar budget. Yeah, that's what happens. Maybe we ought to think about what we wish for. And the next thing you know, you're thinking, I don't get to do the stuff I want to do anymore. i got to do all this other stuff. Well, but we're peddling faster and faster because the world is shaping us into its mold because actually we keep shaping the idol of success keeps shaping us. You do know that the scripture infers in so many ways that we make our idols and then our idols make us. And that's where our problem comes. So we start looking for life and addictions, which happens even among those of us who are pastors because the truth is we get such pressure and so empty that we're looking for any place that would make us feel better. We want some life, some life, some place. And the anguish of our hearts pushes us to go grab some life from wherever we get it to which Satan says, know exactly where you ought to go. Of course, he never announces himself. That's the problem. And so then he said, you know, all of a sudden there's this temptation. You'll feel better if you eat this, watch this, go here, do this. And the next thing you know, we're addicted because we're searching for life. Pete's sake, watch your life and your doctrine. Don't you know who has the words of life? Don't you know that Jesus himself said, 
Come and learn from me these rhythms of grace. It's easy when you're with me. The yoke fits. It makes sense. And my burden doesn't overwhelm you. So if you're overwhelmed, why are you overwhelmed? I'm not overwhelmed. If you and I are walking in tandem in this ministry that you're doing, you're watching your life and your doctrine, if we're walking in tandem, you shouldn't be overwhelmed. I find it intriguing that in uh, God's majesty, he gives us different pictures, like looking at things from different views. So you can see this side where there's no print, or this side where there's print, or this side where there's print, different views. And so he does that in the church plant of Ephesus. And there's three different ways you can come at that church plant, all from Scripture. One is you can read the story of the Ephesians, in, or the letter to the Ephesians. You can go read that, which is amazing, just amazing. But we narrow it down and thin it down and live in the bland of it. You can go to Timothy, which is kind of what we're doing today. And you could also integrate the process of Acts chapter 19. And I want to walk you through that kind of quickly here. Acts chapter 19, one of Paul's companions goes the other way and he cuts through the interior from Corinth and ends up at Ephesus and he ends up there and he sees some disciples and he says to them, uh, have you received the Holy Spirit? Uh, what? It kind of makes you, I, it's a theological institution. Is it progressive or instantaneous sanctification, right? And... Do you receive the Holy Spirit then when you're saved or later? Okay, all that, we're going to wrap it up, put it right over here on the shelf because we're not going to deal with that today. Here's the deal. How in this world do these people walk day after day after day after day trying to be Christ followers without the presence of the Most High? How does anybody do that? Unless you're going to eventually get done because it's hard. And the best thing you can do is sin management. And if you're trying to be a good person, go be it. But if you want a person who has spiritual authority, it's a whole different path. So Acts 19, Paul says to them, well, have you received? Nope. So he prays, they receive. Then it's interesting. Follow the story on down. In my Bible, this part, the next part. So this part down here, they, Paul starts, he, there's healings. God does miraculous signs through Paul in this handkerchief that, you know, he prays over or touches or whatever, and, they, and people are healed. Doesn't happen in our world. Just, just a thought. I actually think it, it can happen. But I also think that God knows how to speak to every culture. And sometimes we want God to speak in unique ways, and he says, and pray tell why I would do that. When you pay no attention to the prophets. So anyway, they don't know the prophets, so he anoints the, the, the handkerchief, gets spread, gets healing. Next kind of story, shortly thereafter, the sons of Sceva, which you might have to, in every church you have to tell what that's about, but you guys know seven guys trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name, and the demon gives them a whipping and a half, and they go out, the point of being naked is ashamed, and, and all of a sudden there's fear that grips everybody because apparently this spiritual battle is pretty hot there in Ephesus. And then the most intriguing moment. God places great fear and the Ephesians come bringing books of the magic arts. One commentator says $2 million. Excuse me? 
Who has two million? I don't know what city has two million dollars worth of black magic books or sorcery books or whatever you want to call it. What are they doing with that stuff? What do you think? They're into the pseudo-mysticism. Ephesians, Paul writes, don't be drunk with wine. Same people. Filled with the Spirit instead. Pseudo, shadow, authentic. Over here, you can feel no pain. Over here, you can feel joy. Over here, you can forget about your worries. Over here, you can cast all your cares upon me. That's real-time theology. Not in there. It's in here. What else would you do with magic books? Well, you'd control. Because if I can cast a spell on you, I can get you to do what I want you to do. And so, therefore, I can control your behavior. And it's that culture with that kind of craziness that Paul writes these words to Timothy and says to him, Watch your life and your doctrine very closely because if you persevere, there'll be moments, Timothy, when it will feel like it's making no difference. There'll be moments when you'll be asking the same questions that they're asking. God, where are you? But if you persevere, something will happen and you'll experience anointing and authority. And when you do, you will be healed or saved and so will those who follow you. It's not the talent of the preacher. Because we all think if I just speak better, that it'll all come to my church. And if I could play the musical instruments and get a really cool band behind me and some neat slides and a few experiences, they would come. They're not income interested. It's your life and your doctrine integrated that blows up the world in the presence of Christ. And someday, you will see the fruit, which is not success, the fruit that you have remained in Him. So my friend Don is a pastor in South Florida. Gifted guy. Always pastored small churches. That, do you see the contrast there? Ain't that gifted? Did you just say that? Did I just say that? It doesn't have to do with gifting. It has to do with assignment. And God has trusted him with this, I am going to say this, mess of a church. And they are a mess. When he, he told me, I've always been given to these, I've always been called to these churches that are hurting. So he goes there, and it's a disaster. Before he comes, I'm with them, sitting in a room in a restaurant with the leaders in the church. And I say to them, what do you like about your church? And they said, uh, well, we love each other. Instantly, the next person says, and I quote, but you have to watch your back. <laughs> I surely misunderstood you. Can you repeat that? Yeah, we love each other around here, but you have to watch your back. Okay, well, then uh, I appreciate it. Can you guys help me under? I'm only like a dog, right? The dogs go back against the wall so they can protect. What are we saying? I said to them, you realize that's kind of pathological, right? They didn't like that. I said, well, who wants a church like this? 
I'm just going to, I'm just, can I just be really honest with you? Like, if this comes to my church, it ain't going to happen. I don't want this kind of stuff. That's who we are. So they, that's the church he gets called to. It's a mess. He gets there, and he's been there about a year, and he texts me. We had our annual meeting yesterday, and I quote, I will never forget this. No curse words were spoken and, spoken and no police were called. It was a good day. <laughs> that is the measure of a good day for Pete's sake. He had the authenticity and the audacity to say to the people, do not invite anyone to this church. We're a mess. Until we figure this out, I mean, again, somehow we keep thinking, be outward focused, be outward focused, be outward focused, be missional, missional, missional. Of course you're missional. But at first you need to be spiritual. Because you need to have a holy community to invite people to. And then you can disciple them. Otherwise, you're simply showing them how good you are. Man, I'm hot today. And they'll come back. Did you discover they didn't? Son of a gun, I need to do better. Yeah, go ahead. It's discipleship. So, this is Don, amazing man. Knows he's been called to a challenging church. This story I'm about to tell you is in your life a thousand times and in mine. It's just the players are different. Well, what happens is, over time, some people leave and their budget, small church, Budget's pretty tight, right? It's not much space there. And now this one lady's going to leave. Do you remember the lady who told me, but you have to watch your back? She's about to leave the church. She gives, small budget, $800 a month. Well, you leave, you leave the money. Let's try that. So Don begins to be anxious. Oh, he's... He's not anxious. He's collapsing inside. And he says, I need to meet with you and some people so we all gather at this office place and to hear him. And uh, that's going to be like a Wednesday or a Thursday. I'm actually gone. That's a Labor Day weekend this year. I'm actually gone and I'm doing some prayer and some prep and some play all at the same time. Uh, that care for yourself stuff, I actually like that part of God's heart. <laughs> I think that's kind of cool. So I'm doing that, but in that moment, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm kind of his judicatory or pastor, whatever you want to call it. So I sit with the Lord on his behalf. What would you like to say to Don? What do you want to say to me to say to Don? And I sit, and I wait, and I listen. And then he says these words to me. You don't get it at all, do you? Can your, you and pastors have this weird idea that if you were safe financially, if you never had to deal with financial issues, you could do the ministry. When do you ever understand, I have to do the ministry in your life before you do the ministry? So actually, I don't want you safe. I actually want you to see me show up in your life so that 
The next time you say, when you seek first the kingdom, all things will be added, it isn't just words, it's life and doctrine integrated that comes through, and all of a sudden the people will say, that feels like authority to me. Because the foundation of authority is always blessing and testing. That's irrefutable from the life of Jesus. So here's where we're going to close this thing up. So I go into the room with Don, and I'm listening to him, and, and he's working through it. I mean, he's really trying. He's working hard at it. He's praying. He's da, 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 da. And in the meantime, he starts telling us this story. You ready? Remember, he's puddling down right now because he's not sure he's going to be able to pay his bills. Can't pay his house payment. I didn't tell you, did I? No, he went through a, a bankruptcy. So his fear would be pretty high. It was uh, health issues and uh, couldn't pay the medical bills, all that kind of stuff. So fear, way high. Bankruptcy. Did I tell you that somebody paid half his house off? Are you really sitting here telling me you don't have a God? I tell you what, whoever paid you, would you introduce them to me? Half the house? I mean, what are you saying, dude? And I, again, I get it. Then he says, yep, and this last week, somebody else paid, we were behind, four or $5,000. They paid it up. Watch your life and your doctrine. Grab them both and put them in the same moment and eat them so that you can watch them closely because, Don, you've got to understand that as you're walking through the crisis right now, you're going to be able to stand before your people and say, there is a God because He lives in me. There is a God who will provide in spite of the fact that everyone else says they're in charge. Because when the bank said, we're going to take everything you have, the Lord says, go right ahead. Because I don't care. Because I already have this guy ready to pay off half your doggone house that he couldn't even afford to buy. Really? Don, when do you get? Ken? Ken, when do you get? That when you watch your life and your doctrine closely and you bring them together in your situation, you will be saved. You won't have to worry and fear. You won't have to bow down to threats. You won't have to feel like the world's successful and you're not. You will be saved. And your hearers, those you are discipling, will follow your model. And they will hear your life more than your mouth. And you are given this amazing gift of sacred trust in the ministries that you lead and the places that you serve. This amazing sacred trust. And He didn't choose you because you're so dang good. And he didn't choose you because you have this mighty calling and if everybody knew it, they'd just bow down. He didn't choose you for that. He chose you as a trust. Walk with me. Look at the next financial challenge and say, it will bow to my Lord. Look at the next person that says, I'm going to take my money and go and say, when do you get I'm not in your hands? You may think you have the power, Mr. Pilot, but really, I'm not too worried about you. You, my friends, have sacred trust.
Watch your life and your doctrine, and the fruit will come. Father, may you just continue to pour your blessings upon this uh, institution and the people here today. Uh, open your heart, open your word to us, open our lives that we can integrate and process and become people who really do experience your heart. And may people be captured by your presence, not our gifts, by your presence in us. In Jesus' name, amen.